please turn with me to Psalm 17. Our text this morning is going to be, uh, we're going to particularly focus on verse 15, but I will read the entirety of the psalm. So Psalm 17 from verse 1. Before I read, let's uh, approach the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this Sabbath day which you have blessed us with, that we may come into your presence and offer praise and thanks unto you for the work which you have wrought in Jesus Christ, your Son, in reconciling us to yourself so that we would be free from the condemnation of sin, free from the pains of death, and be able to enjoy you, to know you, and to be satisfied in you. We ask that as we approach this subject before us in our text, that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, that you would give us understanding, uh, that you would be with us despite the weakness of our minds, despite the frailty and the incompetence of the preacher this morning, that you would nevertheless show us your glory, that we might appreciate you and love you more and more and be conformed to your image more and more as we look ahead to that great day when we awake in the resurrection and we see Jesus Christ face to face and we obtain that immediate vision of the triune God. And we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Psalm 17 verse 1. Hear the right, O Lord. Attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feigned lips. Let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Thou hast proved my heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. I have called upon thee, thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me, and hear my speech. Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest By thy right hand, them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. From the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who compass me about, they are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now compassed us in our steps, They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth. 
like as a lion that is greedy of his prey, and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, disappoint him, cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword, from men which are thy hand, O Lord, from the men of the world which have their portion in this life, whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure. They are full of children and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. And thus ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Jesus Christ's salvation is a complete salvation that encompasses not only a cancellation of a debt, but also the bestowal of a reward. So often we tend to think of salvation with an overemphasis on being delivered out of hell. But much more than that, Christ came to deliver us into the presence of God so that being reconciled to God, we might know God and knowing him, glorify and enjoy him. The gospel is a means to an end. The gospel is Christ's work of mediation to reconcile us to God. God, who we are at enmity against because of our sin. He comes and brings us, he bridges the gap being God and man in one person. And thus, we are not only delivered from the wrath of God, we are also rewarded with the joy of knowing God. The gospel is a means to communion with God, to knowing God. God is blessedness itself. And what is blessedness? or beatitude, as we might call it. It is happiness, the simplest way to explain it. We speak of the beatitudes in Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the man. Blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the pure, the poor in spirit and so forth. And that blessedness consists principally in knowing God, because God himself is blessedness. Blessedness is an attribute of God. Sometimes we we might not be inclined to think of it in that way, but the scriptures clearly set this forth and it was clearly known to the Jews. So often Paul in his epistles, when he would stop and give a doxology, he he would mention God who is blessed forever. When Jesus was on trial, they asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Blessedness is an attribute of God and because God is blessedness itself, he is the fountain of all blessing and all blessedness flows from him. So as we are reconciled to God, as we look forward to being joined with him forever in heaven and knowing him and seeing him face to face, 
We look forward to him communicating his blessedness to us in the greatest possible way. And even in this life, as we behold God by faith in Christ, we still partake in that blessedness, though not to the same degree. This is the sum and substance of heaven. This is the Christian's great uh, hope and the object of our faith which we await to obtain. And this is David's hope and comfort as he prays to God in our text. David here, he prays, he's praying unto the Lord. And he cries out to God for deliverance from his enemies. Verse 9, he prays to be delivered from the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who can pass me about. And as he goes on, he begins to uh, speak of what the wicked men who do not know Christ, who do not uh, have reconciliation with God, what their hope, what their comfort, what their pretended blessedness in this life is. And you'll note that it's all temporal things, things of this world, which are good, but yet without Christ are worthless. Verse 14. He prays, Deliver me from men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure. They are full of children and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. The wicked in this world many times prosper. They have good things. They have riches. Often we read in the Psalms, especially Psalm 73, of how the righteous complain, how the righteous look out to the world and they see the prosperity of the wicked and they look at their own condition. But ultimately, whatever comforts they may have, they may enjoy in this life due to the common grace of God, which is shown to all men, so far as temporal comforts are concerned. Nevertheless, they do not have that ultimate joy and satisfaction, which those who are joined to Christ are able to look forward to. So although they have all these things, they are full of children. They leave their substance to their babes. David has no reason to be envious. Although he is oppressed, although his life may be in disarray, he has a source of comfort, something that he looks forward to. He says, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. I've titled this message Satisfaction in the Beatific Vision. And I want to explain that phrase, beatific vision. I've already explained the term beatitude, which is blessedness or happiness. The beatific vision 
is the vision of the blessed. It is that immediate apprehension or sight of God which we look forward to in glory. This is the reward which Christ in his mediation and his imputation unto us of his own righteousness has purchased for us. The beatific vision. Now, this vision does not consist principally in a bodily or corporeal vision of the eyes. Although there is a certain aspect in which that's true because Jesus Christ is true man and true God. And in heaven, we, we will see him face to face in his glorified state, his human nature, that is. But principally, it refers to the eyes of our understanding. The eyes of our understanding to which an, an immediate knowledge will be communicated to us of the triune God. We can consider knowing God under two uh, principal ways. The way in which we know God here as, as believers joined in Christ and the way in which we'll know him in glory. The simplest way to, to categorize those is, to, is beholding God by faith. As the scripture says, we walk by faith and not by sight. And in glory, we will behold God by sight indeed. 1 Corinthians 13 describes this. Now, we see as in a glass or in a mirror, darkly. We have Christ, we have God revealed to us. But it's not as clear as it could be. Due not to the weakness of the revelation, but to the weakness of our own minds. And through God's revelation, he, as it were, provides us an image of himself, like you would see in a mirror. And then as you behold an image in a mirror, you're not beholding the actual person, but an image. And due to the weakness of our minds, of our intellects, this is a, a dark image. It's unclear. As we read the scriptures, although it's clear in and of itself, we struggle. There's so many things we don't understand. Even, and even if we had a perfect understanding of the scriptures, still the nature of this revelation is that it's, it's through a medium. It's like using uh, technology or seeing someone through television or through Skype, FaceTime, something like that. It's not a face-to-face -face interaction. But when we, as David says here, awake, that is when we come to life again in the resurrection, awake out of sleep in Christ, we will behold the face of God in righteousness. And at that time, the use of faith will not even be necessary because we will have the object of this knowledge, whether it's knowledge through beholding God by faith or knowledge of beholding God by sight, we will have it. 
And this is exactly what Paul means when he says that between faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Because faith and hope are temporary. They're to be used in this life as we walk by faith and not by sight. But when we see God face to face, as it were, when we have that which we hope for, there will be no more need for these, but our love will continue. We'll continue to love and enjoy God forever and ever. God, as I said before, is blessedness itself. And knowing God is the sum and substance of eternal life. Jesus, in John 17, says that this, and this is eternal life, to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. To know God is what heaven is really all about. Not the distorted, carnal ideas of many in this world, where they simply have the same kind of pleasures, the same kind of desires that they want on earth, whether it's simply uh, playing games or beholding earth or having earthly riches or the pleasures of the flesh. No, knowing God is what heaven is truly about. And the nature of man is such that it is ingrained in us to desire that knowledge of God. The chief, man, the, the chief end of man is indeed to glorify and to enjoy God. True, satisfactory enjoyment for the human soul can only be found in knowing God. Perhaps you've had an experience where you learn something new, something that is paradigm shifting for you. Maybe something about history, something, some, uh, some aspect of history that has shaped the way society is even to this day. And when the, your eyes are open to that, there's a certain kind of pleasure to that, isn't it? And it's interesting, it's fun. Maybe you've experienced this in school or maybe in your field of work. God created us as rational creatures with minds that are able to apply reason and logic with minds that desire what we judge as good. That's not to say that we always desire what is good, but what we judge as good. And this is why sin is so heinous. Because Having fallen into sin, our minds and our reasons are our reason is corrupted, so that we call that which is evil good, and that which is good evil. So that when we sin, we are judging something to be good, which is in fact evil, and we are casting away the true good, which is obedience to God and knowing God, and we're saying that this is better. This sin is better. I desire this more than God. But in the glorified state, when sin 
is taken away, when we, as the text says, behold his face in righteousness, those aspects of our reason, those aspects of our reasonable souls will be corrected. And once again, as it was uh, in the unfallen state of Adam and Eve before they sinned, our pleasure and our joy, we will judge that which is to be good, which truly is good, and we'll be able to partake in it. And God himself is the highest good. His beauty is past description. I'm not able to do justice to this subject. This subject, which has such an impact on every aspect of the Christian life. How can a mere man come before you and speak to you about the glories of the triune God? That which every Christian longs for. That which is our ultimate satisfaction. That which gives us hope in the midst of trial and affliction. You see, this is not merely an abstract subject for those who like to daze up at the skies laying in the grass. No, this has practical implication for us. The, the application that we see here that David makes for himself is that although he might be oppressed, surrounded by enemies, although his enemies might seem to be prospering while he himself is under affliction, nevertheless he knows that he will behold the face of God in righteousness and that true satisfaction can only be had when he awakes to behold God and his likeness. What is the face of God? This term is used throughout the Bible. Typically, it would, it would mean a, a representation. You can think of an athlete that's maybe said to be the face of the NBA. That person represents and encompasses the NBA. Or your face itself is, in fact, a representation of you. So that when a person sees a picture of, the, of your face, or sees your face even in person, they say, oh, that is John. That is Patrick. I take it, however, here in particular, that same notion in mind being related, to refer especially to the second person of the Trinity who elsewhere in scripture is called the image of God or the image of the Father. The Son subsists being begotten eternally of the Father. The same numerical nature being communicated to him through that eternal generation such that the nature is not divided, but the persons are distinguished and made distinct. So that in that distinction of persons, 
although they are numerically one and the same as far as their nature and essence is concerned, he is the image of the Father in that he is every way like his Father. And this is true according both to his personality, his divine personality, and also in his status as mediator, God-man. That when Jesus Christ came to earth, he in a very real and visible way exhibited all the attributes of God and, re- and uh, revealed God to us as we read in John chapter 1. I understand this term of the likeness to be equivalent with the face of God. That is, in a peculiar way, David looks forward to seeing Christ, to being satisfied in Christ, his mediator, his savior. David, although an Old Testament saint, was saved by Christ in the same way that we are. The scripture says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other way to salvation but through Christ alone, under the Old or under the New Testament. So David enjoys all these same benefits of being reconciled to God and being reconciled knowing and being enabled to glorify and enjoy God, both in this life as he beholds God by faith in Christ and in the life of glory where he beholds God by sight. And this has tremendous impact on us. One application that we can make of this is that if knowing God is our great and ultimate desire, if it is that which we are going to find our ultimate satisfaction in, in heaven, then how does that affect how we live on earth? If we're saying, if we're we're professing with our lips that we're going to be satisfied with knowing God in heaven, then it would be inconsistent for us to not be desiring to know God by whatever means we can here on earth. And you'll see that as we consider this, a heart that beats with the desire to know God is going to be animated with blood flowing within with an action that actually makes use of the means in this life which God has given us in order to know him. When this desire burns within you to know God, you won't need to flagellate yourself in order to uh, read your Bible. Because if knowing God is your desire, then what else are you going to do beside read your Bible? 
It's not going to be simply, let me read my three to six verses in the morning so I can check off my daily devotion from the list. No, there's going to be a different kind of hunger. You're going to come to the scriptures saying, like Moses, show me your glory. And you're going to take every use, you're going to make every attempt you can to make use of this means, this principal means which we have, which is the scripture. And when you come to God in prayer, it's going to be a renewed fervor. Because this prayer is, an, is, is a principal means of communing with God that we have here in this life. Public worship, another principal means of knowing God here in this life. I'll read Psalm 63, the first few verses. Psalm 63. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see thy power and thy glory. So as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. In the sanctuary. What is the public worship of God? Why are we here this morning? Is it because it's a duty of the fourth commandment? Yes, it is a duty. But more than that, our hearts are, ought to desire to see the power and the glory of God in the sanctuary, in the church. And you see how this will have an effect on how we approach the public worship of God. If this is a means whereby we know God, where we get a foretaste of that perfect knowledge of God which we await in heaven, then how can we neglect it? How can we not be overjoyed to come into the presence of God week by week and meet with him in a special way as his people? Another application of this is that, that we see is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now this describes our state here on earth as we behold God by faith, as in a glass, yes, but even so beholding him is the means whereby we are conformed more and more to his image. As we behold him by faith through the means he has given us, through the scriptures, through prayer, through the singing of psalms, and especially in the public worship of God, we become more and more like Christ. Are you lacking in your mortification of sin? In your Christian virtue, virtues which are described in the, in the epistles of Paul? 
in your patience, in your kindness towards your children or towards your wife, what is it that you need to do? Should you make a list of rules that you should check off each day as you go through and do them? Maybe, maybe that helps, but that's not the root of the solution. The root is to behold God, to behold Christ by faith. And as we behold him and contemplate him and meditate on him, we'll be conformed more and more to his likeness. And here in this life, that's only in a, in a partial way. Our sanctification is not made perfect, although we might make great strides in growth and conformity to Christ. But we read in 1 John chapter 3 that when he appears, when he returns, we will be like him. That sanctification process will be perfected. But there is a connection there. of conformity to Christ and beholding Christ. So yes, as you realize your shortcomings as in your Christian walk, whatever they may be, first of all, set your heart to know and to behold Christ using the means which he has established. To behold him by faith, to take hold of him by faith, Through faith, you obtain not only justification, not only God erasing the legal debt of your sins, but also the sanctification process has begun, is begun as Christ sends his spirit to begin to work in you. And all throughout the Christian life, we are to walk by faith. And the object of that faith is the glory of God in Christ. So make use of the scriptures. Make use of prayer. Make use of singing the psalms. Make use of the public worship of God and the communion of the saints. Pray that God would open up your eyes to understand and to apprehend his glory more and more. So that in knowing him, your affections will be stirred as they ought. So that as you hear of sublime subjects, like the glory of the triune God, that your heart would not be cold, that your heart would be stirred up to love, and to action in response to that love. Christ came into the world, yes, to deliver us from the wrath to come, but also to deliver us, to bring us into the joy of our Lord. And when we view the gospel in this light, how much more appreciation ought we to have? It would be sufficient if God It would be sufficient cause for us to be thankful if Christ simply removed our debts. If he simply paid off, for example, your student loans, that would be nice. You'd be extremely grateful for that. 
and then your bank account will be at zero. It's better than having negative 50,000. But on top of that, not only does he pay off your debt, he gives you access to his unlimited funds, his unlimited treasures, the unsearchable riches of Christ, as the scriptures puts it in Colossians. To have access to God as our Father here in this life, beholding him by faith, and the ability to look forward to full communion with him in heaven so that we partake in his blessedness being communicated to us in knowing him immediately and in knowing him being moved to love and glorify him and enjoy him. What a great reward we have as the people of God. So then, the gospel is not only deliverance from destruction, but also preparation for glory. So as we share the gospel with our neighbors, or if perhaps we have not yet believed the gospel in this room, know that it's not only a cancellation of debt and destruction that you're missing out on, but it's an, in, an incredible, indescribable joy that you'd be missing out on. To know God, to behold his glory far surpasses any kind of pleasure that could be experienced in this life. It's far greater than the, the, than the temporal goods which David describes in Psalm 17 that the wicked have. And it is the only true satisfaction the only lasting, everlasting satisfaction that can be had. When God established the covenant of grace with Abraham, he said unto him in Genesis 15 verse 1, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. He is our reward. God himself to be able to partake in the joy of knowing him, to share in his blessedness, that indescribable, immutable happiness which he has. He has offered freely in Jesus Christ to sinners who abide here in this life in the sin and misery of this world. This provides us with great comfort that whatever trials, tribulations, or afflictions we may go through in this life, whether they're physical, emotional, whatever they may be, oppression from outside, despair from within, we have hope. Hope that in the resurrection when we are glorified, all that pain, all that affliction will be taken away. When Christ appears and we see him face to face and we receive that reward which is promised to us in the covenant of grace, God himself as our reward. 
whatever it may be in this life that we go through, the afflictions, the troubles, which Christ himself said that in this world we will have troubles. Nevertheless, we have something to latch on to and hope as we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Mediator, who reconciles us to God. It is impossible for a mere man, especially someone as unqualified as me, intellectually speaking, to properly convey to you the glory of this subject. But contemplate it throughout this day. That you, a mere filthy sinner, justified and sanctified and one day glorified, will be able to enjoy the presence of God. What a great work Jesus Christ has wrought upon the earth. And this is why we sing in the Psalms that all nations ought to proclaim his praise. Where we call upon all the nations to come. We call upon kings to serve him and to worship him, to kiss the sun. Because not only deliverance from his wrath, from the wrath of God, but also access to the joy of knowing God is granted and freely offered to all nations and all people who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing God ought to be our chief joy in this life. And it will provide motivation to wade through even the more difficult parts of Scripture. Because if you set it as your goal to know God, as your, that that's your chief desire, then even the more difficult parts of Leviticus or the historical books, which might not be as enjoyable to spend time as, as the Psalms or maybe the Gospels, you'll set your mind to study them because all of it, all of the scripture is a means to knowing God. And this perhaps might even drive you to want to study the more difficult aspects of theology to make use of another means that, God, that Christ has established to know him, which is the holy ministry of the word. As we read of in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, that Christ gave gifts to men in establishing Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And so we have a great body of preaching and teaching that's been left to us by these men gifted to us from Christ, whereby we can make use of to learn in some of the more difficult aspects of Scripture and the doctrines of theology. Your pastor when he went to seminary. I'm sure that there were aspects of sem- many aspects of seminary he not, did not find enjoyable. Many difficult things that he had to read, that he had to force himself through. Difficult languages, Greek and Hebrew, to learn. For what purpose did he do that? 
so that he would be equipped to know God using the means that he's established on this earth better and better. And so that he could teach and communicate the knowledge of God to you for your enjoyment as well. A man that loves his family and says he wants to enjoy his wife and his children. What does that man do? Does he stay home all day and night with his children and enjoy their presence and play with them and just have fun with his wife and children day in and day out? No. There's difficult things he has to do. He has to get up and go to work every day so that he can support them. The mothers as well may go to work or do other difficult things for the sake of the family that they love. So as we consider spirituality, we must always remember that true spirituality is not a just sitting under a tree, forgetting all of our duties that we have to do. No, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So therefore, as we seek to know God and to enjoy God and to love him, remember that this drives us to duty, to action, to faith working by love. So the love and the desire that we have to know God drives us to seek to know him more and more through the means which he has established. And let us always be grateful to the Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator, who has freely offered salvation in his own work to bring us reconciliation to God, that we might know him and in knowing him, glorify and enjoy him. So as we go about the Sabbath day, rejoice in the work of the Lord, that you have an opportunity to behold him by faith here in this life, and that you have hope of ultimate satisfaction when we behold him by sight in glory. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the means which you have set up whereby we can know you in this life, however darkly, however obscurely that may be. We ask that you would work effectually in all of our hearts. Send your Spirit to reveal the deep things of God unto us, that we might know you as much as we can in this life as we look ahead to knowing you fully in the life to come. I pray that as we go about the rest of our day, that you would be with us, that you would send your spirit so we would mutually edify one another as we glorify you in our conversations and our fellowship, and as we come again to meet for worship in the evening, that you would once again be with us. Thank you for the work that you have done in Jesus Christ, who has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, who has finished his work, and therefore we also rest in him this day. I pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.